Hicks novel, uh, the novel that somehow perfect America. Uh, it's uh, a novel by Tom Wolfe. It's called Bonfire of the Vanities. Is anyone uh, it's a movie. The movie is, of course, not as good as the novel. Uh, it's basically an epic fall and redemption novel, except that there's not much redemption. And, and McCoy is sufficiently repulsive that the fact that it's all fall actually feels okay. We're, we're introduced to him as a winner. He's one of the great winners of life. Uh, he's a Wall Street financial giant York and he has a term for himself and for the people like him with whom he associates and competes uh, he is a self-styled quote master of the universe and what draws you into the novel is the fact that a title like that doesn't actually seem all that fanciful whatever and whoever he wants whenever he wants it or her he gets. That's what it is to be a master of the universe. You have total agency, total decision-making power. What you want, you get. Now, I suspect that none of us would be in that position and would certainly never call ourselves by a title like Master of the Universe. But Tom Wolfe, who wrote an acute enough observer of human nature and a skilled enough writer, that although we are not in the same league as Sherman McCoy, deep, deep down, we would love to be. Perhaps not master of the universe, but at least master of our universe. And so at the same time as we watched Satisfied at Sherman's downfall, we're also not entirely unsympathetic. We, we know what it's like to be little agents, to at least have control over the things we do or are done to us, at least some of the time. And so even if we're not big M masters, we like to think we can be at least little M masters of our little U universe. Because, of course... On the other hand, the people that are most pitiable in our society, the people that we most pity, are those who have no control. Those whose agency is so thoroughly diminished that they are just at the mercy of others. Only and always. They make few decisions and the ones they make don't actually come into effect. And it's not a stretch to imagine them saying something like Psalm 123 verses Three and four, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than its fill. The, the word literally is a neckful, a gillful of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Here is the voice of any non-master of any universe. Here is a person who knows contempt and the scorn of those who are at ease, the harsh, cold voice of the proud. And here's the point. This is us. These words are for us. This is the voice of the people of God. Because the one thing that God's people know is that they are not masters, they are servants. We are not masters because we have a master. 
the great agent, the great decider of things and wielder of authority. Jesus was so crystal clear about this. Uh, he said in the intensity of the night of his betrayal, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you do not belong to the world, I've cho chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, servants are not greater than their master. If they've persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And sometimes I think it feels very much like that. Try being or becoming a disciple of Jesus in North Korea or in Lebanon or perhaps even in New York on Wall Street. And you'll feel, at least to some degree, and maybe an extreme degree, the world's hate. You'll know the contempt of the proud. You'll have your fill of the scorn of those who are at ease. But of course, for most of us, most of the time, though the reality might be the same, the feeling is muted. We can become infected by the world and subtly convinced that we are masters of our universes. Or at least could be, if only, if, if only... I had a little bit more money. If only I got that job. If only he or she said yes. If only I was better at such and such. But the gospel makes us servants. The gospel makes us servants, not masters. Not on any terms, not of any universe. And this psalm gives us the sense of servanthood, how to make sense of servanthood because it speaks to us of the one whom we serve. And it says with this one, actually only with this one, you are totally and utterly and completely safe in his service. With this one, his service is perfect freedom. And we're going to learn from the psalmist um, who our master is under uh, three headings, the one who is enthroned in the heavens first, second, the one who is the master of the household, and therefore, third, what we can always, always expect from this master. So first then, who is our master? He's the one who is enthroned in the heavens. Uh, we've met the theme of lifting eyes before, actually, in these Psalms of Ascent, uh, literally, because Jerusalem was high and you come in a road that was low, and so you'd lift your eyes, right? I mean, it's actually, a, it, but it's not just literal, it's metaphorical. It's a, it's a beautiful image, the sense that our lives are lived outside of ourselves, that we look to all manner of things, actually. And, and in fact, in large measure, the substance of a person really is the product of that to which he or she looks. And of course, in situations of stress, like labouring under the scorn of those who are at ease and the contempt of the proud, the fact that you look elsewhere is all the more obvious. And the psalmist looks up. He lifts his eyes. The only alternatives, of course, are to look inward in self-reliance or, or to look downward in defeat or perhaps look outward in desperation. Help! But the psalmist does none of these. He lifts up his eyes. And the one to whom he looks is the one who is enthroned in the heavens. What is it to say that the Lord is enthroned in the heavens. Well, what's crucial to see here is that this is not a claim about space. It's not a spatial metaphor. It's a claim about authority and reality. It's a 
relational metaphor. The point is that God isn't just another thing among, among all the things that make up the universe. A, a bigger and more powerful thing, sure, but still a thing. No, no, no. God is not a thing. He dwells in the heavens. He's transcendent is the technical word. He's outside the world that we inhabit and that we have access to. And what the psalmist is claiming here is, is a, a straightforward and foundational claim. It's shared by ancient Israel and by Christians as well. It's that God is beyond the constraints and experiences of our broken world. Some years ago, the Russian astronauts who made it into space first declared that they'd been to the heavens. See, that's, they've been up there. And you know what? God wasn't there. And uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in response, wrote a, a beautiful little essay called The Seeing Eye. And he makes a crucial point. What he says is that if there is a God who created the world and who created us, well, well you can't relate to him the way a person in the, the first story of a building relates to a person in the second story of the building. You've just got to get access to the stairway and you just sort of climb the stairs and go up. Rather, you would relate to God the way that Hamlet would relate to Shakespeare. If, if Hamlet was trying to prove that there was a Shakespeare, he's not going to be able to do it by going into a, a lab or finding Shakespeare at the, the, the top of the stage. The only way Hamlet could know anything about Shakespeare is by Shakespeare writing something about himself into the play. Listen to how uh, C.S. Lewis concludes. He says, If God created the universe, he created space-time, which is to the universe as the meter is to a poem or the key is to music. To look for him as one item within the framework which he himself invented is nonsensical. If God exists, mere movement in space will never bring you any nearer to him or any farther from him than you are at this very moment. You can neither reach him nor avoid him by travelling to Alpha Centauri or even to other galaxies. And he concludes, A fish is no more and no less in the sea after it has swum a thousand miles than when it set out. So the psalmist is saying when he says that the one to whom he lifts his eyes is enthroned in the heavens. The God he cries to as his master whom he serves is not within the framework that he invented. He's not to be found within the constraints and the restrictions of our broken world. He isn't related to this world as one object to another. He's related to this world as an author is related to a play. And can you see, that's precisely why the psalmist cries out to him. That's why it makes sense to look to God as a servant, even in the midst of shame and scorn and contempt. The whole point is that he is above this world. Precisely in the sense that he's not bound by it. And because he isn't bound by it, he's able to intervene in it. If God was just a more powerful thing, even a more central character, then he might be able to do something for us. But he can't change the framework. He has to play by the same rules as everyone else, but he is the author. He's the one who can change the plot. He's the one who can make our story come out right. 
And that's what the psalmist wants, you see. That's what the psalmist needs. He needs his story to be changed. He wants this experience to be rewritten. And so he appeals to the author, the one who dwells in the heavens. But can you really expect the dweller in the heavens to use his power to rewrite your story? Is the author of the universe actually interested in you? Well, yes, he is. And he's not just interested in you, he's partisan. That is, he's on your side. Because the second thing the psalm teaches us is that we look to the God who is master of the household. See, the, the great lofty metaphor dwells in the heavens, now comes down to earth. The psalmist uh, looks not only uh, up, but also to the household. Verse 2, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Uh, we, of course, don't like the idea of uh, being a servant uh, or a slave. Uh, it's bad. Uh, but in the ancient world, it wasn't quite so clearly the case. The, the kind of slavery that we uh, support international justice mission in fighting against isn't what the psalmist is talking about here. In the ancient world, each household was essentially run by slaves, servants. They served the will and good uh, of the master or mistress of the household, and in return, they received a living and protection. They were members of the household. And what the psalmist is showing us here, and just, I mean, allow this to kind of register for you. It's astonishing. The one who dwells in the heavens, that's a... That's a house metaphor, right? Where you live, where you dwell. Has invited us into his own household. The true and living God, the God of the whole universe, the one who's beyond our world, outside its restrictions and constraint because he's the one who writes the story. He isn't far off. He isn't distant. He isn't abstract. He's near to us. He's available to us because he's made us part of his household. Uh, the image here isn't of an oppressive or exploitative master who squeezes every ounce of profit out of his slaves. Both the Old and New Testaments have extremely harsh words for masters like that. Instead, what we see here is an image, if you like, of mutual obligation. The slave is a member of God's household is entrusted with the master's affairs. The master, in turn, provides the servants with safety and security. As one commentator puts it, the God appealed to here is not authoritarian and demanding, but authoritative and protective. But the, the psalmist is actually making an even deeper and richer claim than that. He, he appeals to the master for grace. He assumes that his master will care that he's experiencing scorn and contempt. And the reason seems to be that the shame being experienced by the slave also reflects on the master. The shame of one member of the household brings shame on the whole household. Uh, if you've uh, been watching The Crown, uh, you'll have some small idea of what this is like. Uh, the staff in the royal household are expected to live lives of a certain 
respectability because their misdemeanors reflect on the royal family poorly themselves. And so when indiscretions do occur, uh, then there's the sort of classic cover-up, even to protect staff whose failures have been exposed, to save the face of the household. And of course, if you're from a, a non-Western family heritage, uh, you, you'll notice profoundly, personally, when you do well, the family tells everyone about it because it brings the whole family on it. When you do badly, the family tries to hide it away. Or worse, you're even ostracised by your own family because it brings shame to the whole family. And so here's what the psalmist is doing in this situation. It's an incredibly bold move. He turns to the one who dwells in the heavens and says, look, I'm your servant. Are you going to let this shame fall upon your whole household? You're the all-powerful dweller in the heavens. You're the author. You're the only one who can set this right, so do it. Because if you let me be put to shame, then you'll be put to shame too. And it's when you put these two things together that the one whom we serve is both the Lord of the heavens, dweller in the heavens, and master of the household, that you know what you can always, always, always expect from him. Point three. See, as servants of the living and true God, we, we are those who use whatever agency we might have, our gifts and our capacities, our time, our resources, our abilities for his purposes, for his glory, for his fame. We serve the Lord of the heavens and the Lord of the household. And it's crucial to hold these two things together. See, if, if all you have is the one who dwells in the heavens, simply transcendent, then he might have the power to rewrite your story, but there's little hope that he would have the interest to do so. This is the deist God, far off, all-powerful and supremely disengaged. The one who sets the whole show up, immense power, and then lets it run on its own steam. But on the other hand, if all you have is the God who is master of the household, simply imminent, then what you will come to expect is an indulgent God. I was speaking to someone recently who was pretty convinced that the Christian pattern of sexual virtue that calls for celibacy outside of marriage didn't apply to him. And, and when I asked him why he thought that, why he didn't think that the path of discipleship for him was actually pretty clear, he simply said, surely God wants me to be happy. And that was it. What's more, I commend him for his honesty. He was really clear. God wants me to be happy. So that's how it's going to be. The, the, the fact that he was a gay Christian, of course, makes no difference at all. The call of God is the same. But for him, God was only imminent. And therefore, the only thing that he could conceive of God wanting was his happiness. But the psalmist knows far better the one to whom he looks is the one who both dwells in the heavens and at the same time is master of the household, both transcendent and imminent. And so what we can expect from him is always, always mercy. Powerful, 
story-changing, transformative mercy. There's a meme that pops up occasionally on uh, my Facebook feed that captures something of this. It reads, Religion, colon, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. And then it contrasts that with gospel. Gospel, colon, I messed up. I need to call my dad. Can you see the difference? Do you see the sense that this makes of servanthood? Whatever agency you might have makes you not a master of your universe, but a servant of the Lord. And that will make you weird. Compared to your friends and neighbours and colleagues, you will have different priorities. You will make different decisions. You will march to the beat of a different drum. And that will be okay. That will be okay. Because the one whom you serve is this one. He dwells in the heavens and he has invited you into his household. It's a bit like a story that um, Richard Glover, the site pastor over at Ashfield, tells about going to a Bob Dylan concert. Uh, before the Dylan concert, before Dylan came on, there was a support act. And as is often the case in these circumstances when you've got a really great big headline act, really no one is interested in the support act. And they treated the support act, the crowd, really pretty badly. They had little patience and, in fact, complete disdain. And through every song that the support act sung, the people were just yelling, get off the stage! We're here for Dylan! We want Dylan! Stop wasting our time! Which is pretty, you know, depressing, right? If you're there, you're pumping it out and giving your heart to it. And I guess there are lots of ways you could respond to that, but uh, Richard tells a story about the way that the lead singer responded on the night um, was just brilliant. Uh, As they're about to launch into their next song, he stopped and and he spoke to the crowd. He said, you know what? I know that you're not here to see us. And and we know that you might not like our music very much, but you know something? We don't care. And you want to know why? Because we got a call from Bob Dylan. And he said, I want you guys to come and play with me. Have any of you gotten that call? Bob Dylan chose us to come on tour with him. Bob Dylan likes our music. Bob Dylan wants us here. So we don't give a toss. Well, that's not quite what they said, I suspect. (laughs) We don't give a toss what you people think. We're serving Dylan. See, that's a little bit what it's like with us and our God. He's the master of the universe. He's the master of your universe. And he gives you and me the dignity of serving in his household. He wants you with him, working alongside him. And when that's true, because that's true, you can say to the smug and to the haughty and those who are at ease and maybe even to that little voice, that accusing voice in your head, my master chose me for this journey. 
so I really don't give a toss. It's when you look to the Lord who dwells in the heavens and see not only a master who gives us a place in his household, but also a master who serves, that makes this profoundly livable. The psalmist tells us that the author of the universe isn't found within the constraints and restrictions of this world that he's made, but what the psalmist did not yet see was our Lord Jesus Christ, who submitted himself to those constraints and constrictions. And in doing so, the master became a servant. He walked this road before us. In fact, that's not adequate. He walked this road for us. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave. He humbled himself. And he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took our weakness and our frailty and even our shame and the scorn that is poured upon us upon himself. He was exposed for all to see on that cross. He was hung up in public and his soul had more than its fill of the scorn and contempt of the haughty and the smug. His soul had more than its fill even of the wrath of God. As the letter of the Hebrews puts it, he endured the cross, despising its shame. The master willingly dying a shameful slave's death to take us and to turn us weak, frail, feeble, fragile, you and me into servants. The support act to rewrite our story by making it his own. And so we can handle what I think is maybe the most poignant word in the psalm. Did you, did you feel it? Until. Until. Until he has mercy on us. Who knows how long that will be? How long the wait is how long there is service to give, how long there is scorn to endure, until. And we're okay with until. We trust our master with until because we know what he's like. Until he grants us that mercy. And we reach the end of the journey and we hear him say, well done good and faithful servant and to enter the joy of your master.